everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher, or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer, or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hello, Rose. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to meet today and chat. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We just learned that we are physically close to one another, which is always exciting. Rose, why don't we start off by having you give a little bit of introduction about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a speech language pathologist and a BCBA, and I have been a speech therapist for over 20 years now, which makes me feel a little old and seasoned, and I have been a BCBA for 12 years. So I really love being duly certified because there are less than 500 people in the entire world that are both speech therapists and BCBAs. And so it is a very small group of people, and I have tried to meet every single one of them. So if we haven't met yet and you're a unicorn, that's what we call ourselves, make sure they hit me up at ABA Speech. And I feel super passionate. I love working with all different types of students, but Ever since my graduate school experience, we worked. W- I was working with autistic learners, and I was just completely hooked. I love trying to support the student that historically has been hard to help. That's my jam. And I think over that, I've just chosen careers where I'm working solely with autistic learners and specialized public school programs. I've worked in non-public programs, and I did that for 20 years. And I started my own business about six years ago. I had the idea for a product, a therapy product called the Action Builder Cards. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I found a designer. Actually, my neighbor hooked me up with a designer. I found a printer. I have distributors. And then from that, I was like, oh my goodness, I need a website now. So that was, I started on a Wix website. Now I've graduated to WordPress. And then I started a blog. And then, you know, we have our own podcast called Autism Outreach. And we have over 100 episodes. Every Tuesday, a new episode airs about autism and communication. And we offer courses. It's just been such a journey. And I love being able to support really professionals who are supporting autistic learners to help them find their voice and develop a way to communicate with the world. So great. That's That was a very well said elevator speech. You like totally threw me in. I was so excited about all of the things you did. I wrote down the name of your podcast because that's something I didn't know about you. So that's what I'm going to do tonight while I fold laundry. So yeah, thank you so much, Rose. I started following you on Instagram, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago. And I think you put so much good information out into the internet that is easy to consume. And I think maybe part of the reason for that is because your target audience is more professionals as opposed to parents. But what you put out there is so applicable to anyone that builds into neurodiverse learners. So thank you for that really easy to access information. Well, I love hearing that. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Okay. So what I love to learn about people is their background, like their why. The letters behind your name are CSLP, BCBA. And then you provide CEUs to people. I'm so curious about how you came 
to your different certifications. How did your experience shape your training? Um, Give us a little bit about your journey. I just always think it's interesting. Absolutely. To throw it way back is my mom gave me a career test. My mom was a teacher. Both my parents are retired educators and my mom was teaching a career course. And I was a junior in high school and I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And so she gave me a career assessment and it said speech therapist. And I had no idea what that was because nobody in my family had received services. And we had a family friend, though, that was just newly in speech therapy. And so I shadowed her, I think, right when I started college and we went to a home health visit. We went to a school. We went to a nursing home. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I really want to be a speech therapist because I can be around people, which for the most part, I love and enjoy. And it's a helping field. And you didn't have to know a lot of math. Math was not my strong suit, to be completely honest, but I was a very good student with science. This just fit my personality perfectly. And so I never looked back. I declared my major freshman year and I became a speech therapist and I just loved it so much. My second year as a speech therapist, I took a position at the Cleveland Clinic. There is a school called the Learner's School. And so It is the least restrictive environment for students who typically engage in behavior that is a barrier to their learning in a public school. And so I worked there for three years, and I always call that my autism boot camp. It was a lot of learning how to work with students who had these learning histories of just not being reached by traditional intervention. And so that's where I learned about applied behavior analysis. And I'll never forget working with a student who was 18, had been in speech therapy since he was three. I remember with my coworker reading the progress notes and it just was really hard. They were not reaching him. And so at 18, he was navigating his day by engaging in very unsafe problem behavior. And so we were able to help him get a device, a text speak. And he was able to request music for the first time and request that he wanted to go outside for the first time. And I remember to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is happening. This is an amazing moment to witness, but it also really made me feel sad inside that he had to wait until he was 18 to be able to communicate. So I was like, okay, this is it, ABA. And then I just, I took a position down in Austin, Texas, where I was a supervisor. And it was just a perfect position because I was working with 35 school district and I was the autism lead. And so I would talk to the speech therapist once a month and I would do trainings and then I would go into the school and I would help them with their kids that were just hard to reach and hard to help. And so that's where I did all my training to become a BCBA. And so it's just really afforded me this really nice career of being collaborative and then also starting my own business and just having a flexible schedule so I can practice, but also be present for my family, which has been nice. So cool. I think your journey is parallel to that of a lot of other people. But I also think you must have that kind of personality of, oh, that's interesting. I think I'll do it, which I identify with too. So we are, I don't know that I'm a unicorn, but we are definitely <laughs> similarly wired. Yes. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about behavior-centric and sensory-centric strategies that will help in speech therapy, as well as neurodiversity-affirming strategies. So I would argue that if we are talking about things that are sensory-specific or that are behavior specific, that they're going to be neurodiversity affirming because we're being respectful of the students. So maybe we could talk about why it's so important that we include these neurodiversity affirming practices in our therapy to start off with. Yeah. I mean, I think 
our field is a science. So I think when we know better, we do better. And I, this week on our podcast, I had a BCBA on who's doing her PhD and she talks, has a joy indicator. And it's talking about, is your client, she's firming it up to make it more standardized and doing journal articles and things like that. Is your client experiencing joy during their therapy session? And I think that's really what we need to get back to is that therapy really should be fun. I think sometimes when we're in the schools, we get, I know because I was a school-based therapist for 20 years, you just get extremely stressed because you maybe can't see kids on their own and maybe that's what they need. Sometimes you're pushing into the classroom and maybe it's a really loud environment, but you don't have another space to see the student. And so I think just being cognizant of how can I help serve this student, but also be respectful of them as an individual. And so I think the way that I try to do that and disseminate on social media and LinkedIn and TikTok and Instagram and all those good things is to have autistic adults on my podcast. And so to talk about ideas like masking and why that's not a great thing and why autism in girls is another topic that is extremely popular with my listeners because we the CDC still says that autism is four to one boys. And I don't say that. I haven't said that in years because if you listen to some of the podcasts, that we've had on about autism in girls, you know that it's just maybe not diagnosed. Like I've had two people on my podcast who were diagnosed as having autism in their 30s, informal diagnosis too. It's just so important for us to be listening to autistic voices, I think, and using our expertise too, and just putting all that information together to make sure that we are offering services in a really positive way for our students and families. I think that's, so true and so wise. And I love what you said about experiencing joy, because I think about the things that I do for myself that are therapeutic to myself. So I have anxiety, I have ADHD, I am I am emotionally very regulated, but I am like a spinner. Like <laughs> I, I, if I point to my eyebrows, my anxiety probably comes up to about here. In my, <laughs> and so what really regulates me is heavy work. Tennis clinics. I love tennis. Mm-hmm professionals. Like they are my kind of people. They're sarcastic, they're high energy, they're silly, they're fun, and they make you work hard. I experience joy in that kind of therapeutic setting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. And is it necessarily therapeutic? No. To be fair, it's not. It's just what I access for right. experience. But when I think about places where I like to work hard, I am feeling joy. And in that joy, I then am making more progress. I hadn't really ever thought about it that way. But the other thing I thought about when you said that is we also don't learn when we are in trauma. And if we are making people super uncomfortable with the way that we're trying to teach them, then they aren't Mm -hmm. going to learn. So it's so counterproductive to do that. Yeah, I'm happy that you said it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's important that even if you're not a BCBA, we're all kind of detectives of our client's behavior. So analyzing when I come into the classroom, And some things just are out of your control. Like I used to do this talk and say, are you a speech therapist? And you go in to get a student for speech therapy, but they've been on their iPad for 45 minutes. And you say, okay, it's time for speech. It's like, you're not really the speech therapist. You're just the person that's taking the iPad away, right? And then that becomes more of an environmental issue. And sometimes, especially what's hard in the schools is sometimes you can model and you can try, but you're stuck with the environment that you have. So you can't make all those changes immediately, right? You just have to try to do your best for what's happening in that moment and be flexible, I think. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, oh, now I want to come on your podcast and talk about some <laughs> because, like, in that case, it's just like at home when your another caregiver or your partner or significant other is allowing that kind of thing, and you're like, okay, time for dinner, and you're like, I step into this situation, and what do you do? You collaborate. Say, hey, we if I want. If I value dinner, if we have to get to practice or whatever it is, then we've got to have these other supports in place for the child to be able to transition mm-hmm. more easily. And a, the preferred iPad for 45 minutes is certainly <laughs> way of that. But you say it with a better tone. Like, I'm talking to my husband with that tone. Oh, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I got you it. Know? My kids both missed the bus totally. today. Yeah. No, I understand. I was doing a training this morning and my husband had to get the kids on the bus and I saw the bus go by and then I heard small voices and I was like, did they miss the bus? These things happen, right? You try to just have a structured system in place and you try to nurture and support. And when you're in the trenches, it can be hard, right? Because you have the staff members that are just going to go above and beyond and embed communication and do everything. But you're always going to have those people that are harder to reach, that don't know what's on the AAC device. And you just have to try to take a deep breath, remain calm and um, be supportive. Easier said from somebody that's not working directly with those people right now, but that's what I tried to do back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next question then, the follow-up question to that is, what are some ways that caregivers and teachers can start to implement these strategies in therapy or even play sessions? How can we help to bring joy in those neurodiversity practices in? I mean, I think the thing that's so important, I just did a training on joint attention today, and I did one for your conference, is just thinking about how can we embed these types of communication-based activities into our daily lives, right? Because it's all about the family routine or the classroom routine. So once you have that framework, and so the way I talk about that is how can we use books, music, and play to help support this communication? And I think the thing that's hard for parents to understand, and especially parents that are not in healthcare or special education, is we can't make a kid communicate. I can set up the environment. I can make it positive and fun and do my best to align with what the student loves and enjoys and is motivated by, but I can't make a kid talk. I can't make them use their device. And that's not really the point. When we're reading a book, if your kid is like, you know, if you're like, oh, we're going to do Pete the Cat and you sit down and you start to read it and then 30 seconds later they run across the room and they get a toy and then maybe they'll come back and sit down. But we can't make them. We can't say, OK, we're going to read a book and you sit here. Maybe we just have a time like I did with my own kids where I was actually really good about this. Um, I have three kids and so they each had a book bin in their rooms and I would change the books out with each month. Oh, it's we celebrate all the traditional holidays. So it's like, okay, it's Halloween. Let's get all the Halloween books out. Let's get all the Easter books out. Let's get all the summer books out. And I really did do that. And then most of my, my kids all had like their favorite books. So I think if you can just embed it into your day, we know how important that literacy is for your students. And it's not about them reading. It's more about, from a communication standpoint, it's more about that shared social engagement. And there's a lot of research that says once that social engagement is going on and we're doing that, that is really the gateway for us to help our students understand language and use language. So sometimes parents may say, oh, it just looks like the speech therapist is playing or I'm not sure what they're doing. And as a a more seasoned speech therapist, when I was seeing kids in the home with my private practice, I would always talk to the parents about this is joint attention and this is exactly why we're doing it. Because parents 
especially of younger students, want us to work immediately on talking. And it's not that we're not going to work on verbal or whatever mode is appropriate. It's just that there is a foundation and there are foundational skills that while we give opportunities to verbalize and things like that, we do need to build up this social engagement, which parents can then do throughout the week as well. And if you do it with consistency, it really builds upon itself so quickly, particularly in kids that are wired to be verbal more innately. It's crazy how quickly it builds. I still see it. My Jack, who has Down syndrome, is 12. And I still see that even if he's just in, like, a, last night was a perfect example. His brother turned 16, so we had a bunch of teenagers over and we went to hibachi, which is really challenging for him because it's loud and yeah. every sense is going. And oh my gosh, last night and this morning, he was so regulated and so talkative. But I think it's because he was in this really socially rich and language rich environment. And it just like gave him the little spark. And I'll carry on with that as long as I can. We'll go to the pool and we'll go play tennis and we'll do all the things mm-hmm. that are regulating to him. And we talk our whole way through so that he gets that like more intense one-on-one language rich connection. It's, that's totally informal, but I see that because I know, you know, enough that I see that in practice. So, yeah, I mean, that that's the name of the game. Speaking of joint attention, you know what? Why don't we go ahead and define for my listeners what joint attention is? And then maybe can we kind of, I love when you talk about incorporating music in as oh, a strategy for joint attention. Like, huh. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So joint attention is really when two people are engaged in the same, looking at the same object or an exciting event. And so sometimes you may see, if you see a typical language learner, I just, I had done this talk in January. It was about uh, a refresher for speech and language milestones. And so it was for speech therapists and BCBAs, but I showed a lot of videos of my own kids across their journey, just like old home videos, because there's so many points where I could say, see, my daughter's looking at me and then she looks at the pumpkin. And then in like a lot of times kids who have disabilities, that's like very hard for them. And so I just try to tell parents, think of it as a shared activity. This is the shared activity that we're doing together. And definitely one of the ways that I love to work on that is with music. And especially when kids are really little. So for really little kids, music that they may see at story time or circle time when they're in preschool, Um, Old McDonald or Wheels on the Bus. So I love songs with motions as well, because if you have a child who's not yet speaking, you can work on joint attention with the music and things like that, but you can also do the motions. And so working on imitation is a really nice foundational skill too. And so I always think of the school-based therapist who's going into a classroom and they're doing a group just like I used to do. And you're going to have every student is totally different, right? That's the essence of a a special education classroom. You know, you may have one student who maybe is talking all the time, and then you may have one student who's just new to a device. And so how can you have this activity where there's a lot of different skills being worked on and then not forcing participation? You're just modeling, you're encouraging, and then giving opportunities to to participate. And then working with older students the past 10 years, before I stepped away from the schools, I worked at the middle school, high school level, which I just love. I love that age group. And so with my older students, I was just telling somebody about this. We did usually during May, because I feel like May, everybody's done with all the traditional stuff. Last May, we did 
music. And so every week I would make just super easy Google slide deck about different genres of music. It was country music. I was talking about like old school country, Garth Brooks stuff I used to like, Morgan Whalen, all those types of things. And we would listen to music and then we would vote. Do we like it? Do we not like it? And then the kids, I worked in a very affluent school district, so we had iPads and things. And so showing the kids like this is how you use Spotify and this is how you can make a playlist. And because every learner is so differentiated. But my, my thing with kids who are a little bit older is just thinking about like you talked about tennis, like how is this important across the lifespan? Because even starting in middle school, right at 14, we have to do a transition IP and talk about what are we doing here? We need to make sure this is going to help the person across their lifespan. So we have to get really clear on that. And so I always think about that. Like, why am I working on this? Why is this going to be important for this student when they're 23? And I think that all really has to start in middle school. Yeah. And maybe even before. So I love how you modeled how we can work on the attention component, the joint attention component, but also executive functions and modeling and all of these other developmental skills through music. And then we can take that across the path of development. That's, that is universal design for learning and action Mm -hmm. there. I love it. That is so important. So how can parents advocate for these kinds of strategies in school? I think there's a lot of parents out there, and this is the name of the game here at Ashley Barlow Company, that know because they have talked to their therapist and they've come to the fountain and they've also drank the water, know their students need, but they have a really hard time advocating for the implementation of strategies at school. So any ideas for advocacy tips? Yeah, I think what's so important. So I worked in this really affluent school district. So just, I think, because of my career path working with autistic learners and specialized programs, I've always been in meetings that were like 20 people and there were always lawyers and advocates. And so from the time I was 24, like I've been in these types of meetings. So I'm always operating from that place of getting my data subpoenaed or a home team going over my IEP with a red pen. That's just the place that I always operate from. And I think the one thing that I thought was really impactful for parents is, and it may be non-traditional, is to come in and observe. I think that's really important for people to come in and observe. It's absolutely your right as a parent to come in and observe. And we had parents who, we had a family who was really difficult to work with. And we set up a lot of different, the child was getting three times a week speech therapy. And that's quite a bit of speech therapy. And Our outside consultant was meeting with the parent every six weeks to go over the progress report that the team had done. And the parent was coming in once a month to observe. So they would just rotate. They'd come in and observe morning meeting. They'd come in and observe speech. And so I think that kind of, it doesn't have to be adversarial either. I don't think that it has to be adversarial because you do want to try to keep this collaborative relationship with your school-based team. But you do want them to know that these are, this is really what I want implemented. And I think that in a school, that's what's hard as a provider, because I would have parents say, I really want my middle school son to engage in a eight turn conversation about non-preferred topic. And then I'm like, I am listening to autistic voices. And I'm like, is this really that important? I don't think this is going to work for this student. And I don't see it as functional, but as the provider in a school, you have to work with the IEP team. So it's, those are the pros and cons of a school. 
But I think I would just really try to be intimately involved with the school. So that is your right. It's not something that every parent does, but I think that it's important to know what does this really look like? Because once parents can really see it, then you can have a dialogue about why did this happen or what do you guys usually do? And it might just be eye-opening. So I think that's what I would really try to do if I had a child of my own who had a disability is that I just would want to know exactly what was going on. Oh my gosh, so important. And I think the flip side of that is also communicating to school what's happening at home and in the community. So here at Ashley Barlow Company, I say, listen, you are the general contractor of home and in the community. And for most school-age kids, there's one more environment. It is school. And so if you are the general contractor of two-thirds of their environment, then and if you want, especially if you need and want more communication from school, then start the dialogue, start the communication. This will yield collaboration so that you can then understand what's happening at school and they then can also work from what's happening at home and in the community and you can make some contiguous plans. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's, you're following in line with things that I say until I'm dead. Blue in the face. face. I'm dead in the face. I'm waiting (laughs) on a roof. I just got a a dental implant. We didn't even talk about that before we press record, but. (laughs) Oh, man. I'll tell you what, I have never had a toothache before, and this is not fun. So what about, I know over at ABA Speech, what you do primarily is train professionals. Have you had any luck with parents asking for training for you? Why don't you tell us a little bit more about kinds of trainings you do, and then maybe how parents can advocate for trainings over at your business? Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, so we are really proud to be an ASHA-approved CE provider, which is great for speech therapists, and we're also an ACE provider for BCBAs. But our courses are taken by teachers as well and also by parents. I always say gung-ho parents who are into really helping their child. And we absolutely do work with school teams all the time and get parent referrals. And so we are always every week training school teams, clinic-based teams on how to help autistic learners get started with communication. Yeah. So we have signature autism courses. Start Communicating Today is for our youngest learners. And then we have Help Me Find My Voice, which is the course I started with for school-age students. And then we had the Advanced Language Learner, which is like, how do we go beyond basic communication? And so what's nice about all of those is that you also get access to a private group where I post each day and do a live every month and I'm starting a membership soon. And so I just like being able to be a support to people. I know that when I'm taking a course for how to do a podcast or how to do a membership or whatever it is, I like to be able to talk to other people and have that sense of community. And so we want to help guide you through that information. So we definitely are a source to parents and professionals as well. Yeah, so good. I can see it working for you. And I really hope that some of my audience members will go check you out. Why don't you just give another little shout out with all of the information on how people can find. Absolutely. Make sure to visit me at abaspeech.org. We have lots of great freebies and information. And then our podcast is called the Autism Outreach Podcast. And it drops every Tuesday all about autism and communication. And we have speech therapists on, BCBAs and OT. Autistic adults. I just interviewed somebody last week who's autistic and their mom too. They just started a company. So we have lots of resources for you. And I always love hearing from you. So just message me through 
my site, or you can find me on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, where I post every day too. So great. Thanks so much for joining us, Rose. Thanks for having me.